Well, I am Pastor Jay, and it is my privilege to invite you to turn your attention to Matthew chapter 10. Matthew, first gospel in our New Testament, what we call the canonical gospels, the four inspired gospels. Many people don't know there's about 20 to 30 gospels out there floating around, some claiming authenticity, but the church has only recognized these four from the very beginning, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, as those that are inspired. Matthew chapter 10, we are currently in a six-part series entitled Following Jesus, and we are turning to Matthew's gospel for one very simple reason. We know that Matthew's gospel, of all the four, contains more of the teaching of Jesus, more of the words of Jesus than any of the other gospels. That's why sometimes it's called the discipleship gospel or the teaching gospel. And we know that Matthew scholars know, and it's not too hard to see, Matthew has built his gospel around five major sermons of Jesus and then filled it in with some other material. But what we have in Matthew are five of Jesus' major sermons, likely condensed to some fashion, and then arranged. Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience, and he may have, some scholars believe, picked the number five to reflect the five books of the Torah. We don't know for sure, but he is writing to a Jewish audience, so it wouldn't be surprising. One New Testament scholar said that when you're looking at the Gospel of Matthew, quote, Matthew is a perfect tutorial on what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. So if you ever wondered, well, what's the essence of following Jesus? Matthew's gospel is your place to go. This weekend, we're coming to the second sermon of Jesus in Matthew's gospel. Last week, we began with what is the longest. We call it the Sermon on the Mount. That's not what it was called then, but Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Today, we come to the second major sermon that Matthew's built his gospel around, Matthew chapter 10. And we're entitling this one, Who Said Following Jesus Was Safe? The theme of this sermon is that those who truly know Christ, and I know that not everyone here does, and not everyone in any church congregation does, but there are many who are true followers, have been born again, they're all in, they have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ alone and His shed blood alone for their salvation. If if that identifies you, The theme of this sermon here is that Jesus sends us into hostile territory. Now, here's the problem. As I look at our culture, pastor is supposed to exegete scripture and exegete culture. As we look at American culture, and this is as true of me as it is in any any of us, I'm preaching this to myself, due to American affluence, due to consumer expectations and living in a consumer-driven culture, due to the fact that we so easily spoil our children and live privileged and pampered lifestyles here in the West. We are very quick, I know I am, quick to complain, quick to grumble, prone to pouting, prone to moping, prone to feeling sorry for ourselves. We easily spoil our kids and feel entitled. And the upshot of all of that is, that most of us then in the American West, in the affluent West, are not very well equipped to handle the kind of life that Jesus summons his followers to. That includes me, 
that includes all of us here. And that is why we need this this morning. I was working on this this last week, last night especially, I was going over this again. We had a long weekend, I was weary, and I was going over this last night, and I was just overcome with the hypocrisy I was feeling <laughs> getting up today, because I'm reading through all of this, and I'm going through my notes, and some of the things I'm going to share, some of the illustrations I'm going to share that are personal, and I'm reading, don't be afraid, don't be afraid if they kill you, don't be afraid if they, and I, and I was, I actually prayed out loud, but I am, <laughs> I am Lord, I, this stuff, I mean at one point last night this wave of this fear came over me, like I don't really feel qualified at all to stand up and say this stuff, it's, I feel fearful, and I was just gently reminded, my job is to preach the text, I'm not getting up to preach what Jay thinks, I'm not getting giving up to give, give Jay's experiences. I'm getting up to say, this is what our Lord has told us. And at that very moment, I needed this as much as anybody here this morning. So Matthew is showing us three things in this chapter. This is God's Word, inspired by His Holy Spirit. Young people, old people, young kids, and everyone else. We need to hear this, especially if we're followers of Jesus, true followers of Christ. We're going to see three things in this chapter that apply to true disciples. One, first, Jesus chooses and sends His disciples. Two, He adjusts their expectations. Oh, do we need our expectations adjusted. They did, we did, we do. And three, then He's going to remind them not to fear. I found great comfort in this last section because it surges with hope. Because the first two sections, fasten your seatbelts. If you came for inspirational goodies, <laughs> uh, no. The first two sections are just straight on teaching about discipleship and what true disciples can expect. The last section, I think you will find very encouraging if you know Christ, that no matter what He calls you to, there are reasons not to fear. And that's what I needed to hear last night. I needed to soak on. I needed to confess. And I needed to get my gospel courage going and my gospel promises. So first of all, this, in Matthew 10, just pretty much breaks right down. Someone in the first service said, thanks for the sermon. I said, I, I just borrowed it. I mean, let's just be honest. I gave proper attestation and I said up front, I'm just taking one of Jesus' sermons. So I'm essentially just re-preaching one of the sermons here of Jesus. I'll just say that up front. First thing we see, Jesus chooses and sends his disciples. Pretty straightforward. The first thing is he chooses them. Uh, a couple things about this list. This is a very familiar list. It's in the three synoptic gospels. We call them synoptic because they have the same structure and synopsis, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. This is not in John, this list, but it is in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And Peter's always up front. He's always the first one mentioned. And Judas is always the last one mentioned with the, the signifier, the betrayer or the traitor. So Peter's always first, Judas is always last. And forever he will be tagged the betrayer. Jesus called his 12 disciples. We know Jesus had a lot more than 12. We know that on, any, on many occasions there were many disciples, but he had an inside group of 12 we also know that he picked, and those became plan A to reach a lost world. He called his 12 disciples to him, 
And he gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and heal every disease and sickness. And here are the names of the 12 apostles or 12 disciples. First, Simon, who's called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip, and Bartholomew, Thomas, and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, there were two Simons, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Not many people use the name Judas for biblical names, although I have a grandson named Judah, and in Pakistani culture, it is the same name as Judas, they found out, <laughs> so, but Judah, and so there are your 12 and it's the same list in all three synoptic Gospels. I want you to look at that list for a minute, and I want you to think something. The word that comes to mind as I look over this list is ordinary. Ordinary. When you think of who these young guys were, this is a group of young, immature, petty, common laborers who had never really traveled anywhere. And if there's another word you could use to describe them, it would be the word average. Very, very average men. And there's a, there's a, there's a trajectory in Scripture where God tends to gravitate toward, not always, but He does tend to gravitate at much of the time towards the average, the nobodies, the ordinary. And we see it throughout Scripture. A couple examples. Think of Moses. Moses had a speech impediment. God said, I want you not just to speak. I want you to be the leader of my people. If you've seen the movie, The King's Speech, you know that that's a daunting thing. Speaking in public is always rated as one of the highest fears people have, especially if you have any issues like Moses. That was the last thing he wanted to do. And God chose somebody with a speech impediment to become the spokesman and the leader of hundreds of thousands of people in Israel. The average. God picked Rahab. And to help the, the spies in Joshua, not only picked her, she became a woman in the lineage of Jesus, which is shocking on many, many levels. God picked David, <clears throat> who at the time was the youngest and the runt, so to speak. He was the one that his father Jesse didn't even think about as he paraded his larger, older, handsome sons front of Samuel for the Lord's anointed. Samuel kept going, no, next, no, next, no, next. Is there nobody left? Well, there's that little, yeah, is the youngest out in the field, but bring him in. Why does God keep doing this? He's doing this to display his glory, to show us something. He doesn't need the brightest and the best and the richest. Sometimes he does skew to that. We see that in the Bible. Job, Abraham, Solomon, he picks some very wise, wealthy people. But most of the time, he skews towards the ordinary, the average, and the nobodies of the world. And then you look at the disciples. This is a collection, again, of very average people. Not only that, they came from tiny little villages right around Nazareth and Capernaum there. Uh, the Bible sometimes calls these places cities <laughs> or towns. They weren't cities and they weren't towns. I mean, two of them, Chorazin and Capernaum, today the footprint is 20 acres maybe and a few hundred people. These were very tiny, rural, backwards villages of very conservative Jews. Laborers, 
That's where Jesus picked his disciples. There were two large metropolitan Roman cities very near where Jesus grew up and very near where he started his ministry. One is Sepphoris, right over the hill from Nazareth. Becky and I have had the privilege to walk around Sepphoris. It's a gorgeous Roman city, ruins and mosaic tile floors. and I mean, it's opulent. Jesus chose nobody from Sepphoris. It was right over the hill. Very urbane, wealthy, metropolitan Roman city. The other one nearby, a few miles further, Beth Chan, the largest archaeological dig today in Israel. The ruins are stunning to see. Jesus chose nobody from Beth Chan. He went to little rural villages, and that's where he picked his disciples. Very normal, average, perhaps below average, nobodies of the world. And he said, those are the men I'm going to use to change the world. I find that really encouraging. Because that's us. That's us. We're a collection pretty much of average nobodies in the world. Most of us, if Christ tarries, will not be remembered 100 years from now, even by our great-grandchildren. And I'm encouraged that that's the people that God often gravitates to. And and choosing the disciples is just a reminder of that. In 1 Corinthians 1, 28 and 29, the Apostle Paul gives us a reason why God so often skews towards the nobodies. In fact, I preached a sermon last year on on 1 Corinthians 1, and I entitled it, Why God Uses Nobody So Often. 1 Corinthians 1, 28 and 29, God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things, and the things that are not. Now listen to the reason. To nullify the things that are so that no one can boast before Him. So one of the reasons, there's many, but one of the reasons God often chooses nobodies is to eliminate boasting, which means he gets more glory. Let me give you one example. One example. And it's a classic example. In India, we know for the last several decades, from those on the ground, from missiologists, we know that the largest single group coming to Christ in India today are the Dalits or the untouchables. Asian culture is very hierarchical, and that's especially true in India where you have a caste system. And to be an untouchable is to be, it's hard for us to even process in an American egalitarian culture how poorly they are viewed and how despised they are. And yet, that's where the majority of people are coming to Christ today in India. That's just one example, again, reminding us of this tendency of God to choose the nobodies of the world. So, Jesus chooses his disciples, and then secondly, he sends them out, verses 5 and following. These 12, Jesus sent out, and here's their marching orders. Young people, you listen to this? Here's their marching orders. Go among the Gentiles, or... Or enter, I mean, sorry, do not go among the Gentiles, which is the exact opposite of what he's going to tell them in Matthew at the end of, the, uh, of chapter 28, where he's going to tell them, go to the nations. Here he says, don't go to the nations. That's the same word, ethne. Or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go to the lost sheep of Israel only. So they're not to go to the nations or the Gentiles, or even those who were half Jews. Sometimes they call them half breed, it's a derogatory term, the Samaritans. Not even to go to those, only to the Jews in Galilee at this point. The kingdom of heaven is near, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons freely you have received, freely give. So his orders concentrate in Jewish Galilee. Now Matthew 28 is going to send them out to all the nations, 
But here, no. Then notice the disciples were given special authority and power to do three things. Heal the sick, cast out demons, raise the dead. I joked in the first service, I've seen lots of job descriptions for senior pastors. I've never seen those three things on a job description for a senior pastor. You will be expected to regularly heal the sick, cast out demons, and raise the dead. I've seen some really weird stuff on pastor job descriptions, but never any of those stuff. What's the point of these? These were the, the, these were the signs of the kingdom Jesus demonstrated in chapters 8 and 9. If you just go back to 8 and 9 and kind of look at them, you will see healing the sick, casting out demons, raising the dead, and now he's going to give his apostles that same authority as they inaugurate the kingdom of God. Finally, they're told how to live, verses 9 through 15. I mean, this is just boom, 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 boom. You just walk right through this text. 9 to 15. Do not get any gold or silver or copper or take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey, no extra shirt or sandals or staff for the worker's worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person. If you can find them, stay at their house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you, or listen to your words, the preaching of the gospel. Leave that town, that home, shake the dust off your feet. That was a sign of judgment. And I tell you, now this is a shocking statement. Look at this. Verse 15, I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Now think about that. That reminds us, number one, there are going to be degrees of hell and degrees of judgment. It's not a level playing field in the afterlife. We know that from the Bible. Not in heaven or in hell. There will be degrees of responsibility and reward in heaven based on how a believer led the Christian life and lived. And there will be degrees of judgment and punishment in hell also based on how somebody lived their life. But it's a reminder that, and think of it this way, these are He's, remember, who, who, who are these people going to? This, they're not going to secular big urban cities. They're going to small Jewish villages. These are very conservative, very rural, very, you know, uh, what we'd call blue-collar laborer kind of villages. Very conservative little enclaves. And Jesus is saying, look it, if you go to one of these Jewish villages and you preach the gospel and all of them had a little synagogue right in the middle of them, and they reject you, it's going to be worse for them on Judgment Day than for those who practice homosexual perversion in Sodom and Gomorrah. That, again, is a jolt. If we read Jesus at face value, so hard to, we tend to read the Bible fast because, oh yeah, I already know what this says. If we linger over the text at times and let something like that linger, that is a shocking statement. That's a shocking statement that some of these conservative Jewish people, very, I mean, Sabbath-keeping, synagogue-going, Torah-loving people, because they don't listen to the gospel on Judgment Day, those who practice homosexual perversion will have it better than them in the eyes of God. That should jolt any of us. And it's a reminder again, there will be degrees of punishment. So Jesus chooses and sends his disciples. Secondly, this morning, second major thing we see, he adjusts their expectations. And ladies and gentlemen, young people, kids, uh, this is what I needed last night. This is where I was faltering last night. 
and, 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 and the fear I was battling just going through this was just like, Lord, is this me? I don't know. And I need my expectations adjusted because we do live in an affluent culture. We live in the 5% bubble of the world that's the most affluent and that does certain things to us. I mean, we do reap tremendous benefits from physical safety and technology and medicine and all that. On the other hand, it does breed all kinds of expectations and thoughts of being pampered and privileged that don't work well with what Jesus calls us to. So he's going to adjust their expectations. And what makes his word stand out here is the emphasis he puts on suffering and persecution. So again, if you came today and this is the first or second time you've been here and you're like, wow, I was hoping for some, you know, something inspirational to get out. Well, it's coming, but this is going to get a little more grim first because he is telling us something about following him that we need to hear. I need to hear it. You need to hear it. His message can be boiled down to this. Those who want to follow Jesus and who are all in, not just those who attend church, bring Bibles, sing in choirs, and get baptized. You can do all that and go to hell. Why? Because you can do all that, tick, check the boxes, and really not have any internal change. Those who have been radically reborn and are, and are, are converted to Christ, he is saying they should expect through the course of their life, be it long or short, to be rejected at times, to be hassled, to be mocked, to be made fun of, and even to be killed. So there, I'm, I said, I'm just, I'm just going to lay it out for everybody right up front. This is what to expect if you're going to follow me. In other words, Jesus reminds true followers, I am not sending you to a playground. I am sending you to a battlefield. And a battlefield means casualties. We know that. Jesus says, remember, not everyone's going to be real amped up and excited to hear truth every time you open your mouth. They're not going to enjoy it. They're not going to like it. They're not always going to appreciate when you share, well, this is what the Bible says, whether you speak up in class or in the university classroom or in your neighborhood or in your office or even your extended family. Some are going to get upset with you. Some of you are sitting out there going, "Uh, tell me. Some are going to get angry. Some are going to become hostile. Some will even become violent. He tells us in very clear words, verses 16 and following. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. It doesn't take very long to think about what that looks like. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, I want you to be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Be on your guard. It's not wrong to be on our guard. You will be handed over to local councils and flogged or whipped in the synagogues. On my account... You will be brought before governors and kings, so in other words, those in political and cultural authority, legal authority. You're going to be brought before the authorities in your culture as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles, but when they arrest you. The first service, we were reading the scriptures, and Becky quietly reached down and pointed to the word when. Not if, when. When they arrest you, Becky and I have, have know several people overseas that have been arrested or kicked out of a country as missionaries with 24 hours of notice after years of faithful ministry. Do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say, for it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Spirit of your Father speaking through you. 
not everyone is going to be excited to hear truth. And that comes in any situation, and they're going to get hostile. Several years ago, Becky and I were at a conference in Chicagoland, and one of the main speakers at the conference was Joseph Tson, T-S-O-N, who at one point, he's still alive, he had pastored the largest church in Romania under communism under Nicolae Ceausescu. It was a hostile environment, a hostile country to the whole concept of gospel ministry. He tells one tiny, he has this, it's an extended story, I'm just compressing it here, but he tells the story, to listen to him tell it live is powerful, of being arrested, beaten, and put in jail, and re-beaten. And then he was delivered finally, and over the next four years, their church baptized 850 new converts. And suffering had opened the door for a tremendous work of the Holy Spirit. Pastor Joseph likes to put it this way, and I like, I like this, uh, the, the duality here. He says, Jesus' sufferings were for propitiation. It's a theological word used three, four or five times in the New Testament. It means to satisfy the wrath of God towards injustice, towards his elect. That's the, what the death of Jesus did, propitiation. So Jesus' sufferings were for propitiation. Our sufferings, said Pastor Joseph, are for propagation, for moving the gospel forward. Jesus suffered for propitiation. Our sufferings are for propagation. In other words, think of it this way. Suffering isn't just a price tag or a byproduct for achieving the Great Commission. Suffering is often God's plan A for achieving the Great Commission, often is appointed means of achieving the Great Commission. It's not just like, well, you may have to suffer a little... Sometimes, much of the time, we know, especially if we know our history of missions and our history of the church, suffering was God's plan A for propagating the gospel and getting the word out and having a gospel movement, a disciple-making movement spread in that region. In Western culture, let's be honest, most of us have not yet gotten to the point where following Jesus has led to physical attack and physical persecution. Having said that, I think we all can feel and sense that we are quickly arriving at the place where true followers of Jesus will feel increasingly targeted legally and socially and economically for their commitment to Christ. Look at verses 18 to 20 again. On my account, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be brought before the authorities, civil authorities, legal authorities, Verse 19, but when they arrest you, don't worry about what to say. At that time, you will be given what to say, and it will not be you speaking, but the Spirit of your Father is speaking through you. Again, let me give you one example just recently that happened in Finland, and I think it's a good, not a good, I think it's an accurate barometer and kind of an indicator of where we are probably heading in American culture unless things turn around, but they're not to the point yet of bloodshed. But they are where we're heading pretty quick. And so what is it? Well, just in the last, and then all this just came shaking down in the last few weeks in Finland. It's a very secular, very LGBT pro government, very pluralistic, very, very everything that's anti-God. In just the last few weeks, we see something. It had to do with a member of parliament, a gal named Pavi Rasanen who in 2004, so you got to go back to 2004 for the story for a minute, as a member of parliament, she wrote a little booklet. It wasn't very big. It was just called Male and Female, He Created Them. 
but it was, a, it was a book upholding a biblical understanding of gender and sexual relations. She got a lot of flack, a lot of hassle. Last April, so now we can fast forward to 2021, she was brought up on criminal charges for what? Publicly criticizing gay pride events. Now, if you live in Woodstock, where Becky and I are, the gay pride things are already up, and it's not, it, June is Pride Month, and they're putting the banners up earlier and earlier every year over there on, on, on the square in Woodstock. She publicly criticized the gay pride events, I think rightly so. A Lutheran bishop, conservative Lutheran bishop, publicly supported her last year. He was brought up on criminal charges along with her. Interestingly, as I was reading and digging in this a little bit, the charges fell, the charges against her and the Lutheran bishop, fell under a chapter of Finnish law which criminalizes, quote, war crimes and crimes against humanity. I think you can see that this is a portent of where we're heading. To speak out against homosexuality or pride you know, not, and again, we're not talking about everyone who struggles with same-sex attraction. That's a different issue. We're talking about people who publicly flaunt God's moral law and are full bore ahead with the whole agenda. That's what she criticized, and in her little booklet supports that. That's what they're brought up for criminal charges under war crimes and crimes against humanity. The good news is, March 30th, they were both acquitted by a federal court of all charges. The bad news is, at least humanly, the state prosecutors indicated they're going to appeal the acquittal. And the prosecute, here's what the prosecution is arguing. That to use the word sin in connection with homosexuality is derogatory and harmful. To who? And the prosecutors argued that if someone wants to believe that, homosexuality is sin, it's okay to believe that in your home as long as you keep your mouth but to say anything publicly, in their eyes, is criminal. And that's where this is heading. And believers are going to have to take a stand. They're going to have to decide. How much am I willing to compromise? How much am I willing to just go along and be quiet and not say what I need to? And that's where we have to seek the Lord and ask for His wisdom and His guidance and His courage. He then tells His disciples that if you're serious about following Him, again, expect setbacks, expect rejection, Expect to get arrested, he says. Expect difficulties, expect to lose your job, expect suffering, expect to be mistreated. He says in John 15, when the world hates you, not if, when, keep in mind it hated me first. And we know that mistreatment can take a lot of different forms. Let me just give some examples. Right now you might be being made fun of at school because of your stance for something. I remember in college, my freshman year, I was at a secular uh, college, started out as a biology major. I was taking botany from a very uh, anti-God kind of guy, gifted botanist. But as I would raise my hand and ask questions about evolution, which I think is a lie from hell, biological evolution, the theory, versus creation, and then we got in some sidebar conversations, he would mock a little bit and make fun of the whole thing. Although, as we had sidebar conversations about it, he did admit that he was a, uh, he said, uh, you might call me a backslidden Christian. I said, what, what does that mean? Well, you, you know, years ago, I went to a Billy Graham rally and I accepted Christ, but I don't have anything to do with it anymore. I said, okay, well, that qualifies as backslidden, yeah. 
But we had very respectful conversations because I'd done my homework and at one point he even said, you, 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 you argue very well for your point, better than anyone I've heard, and so thank you for the dialogue. And it, it allowed us to actually have a respectful dialogue even though at times he was poking fun at the whole thing in class. Maybe you've taken a stand for truth in a situation, faced criticism or opposition. Maybe you've been mistreated and have to face consequences in the marketplace or, or at school or for your commitment to Christ in your neighborhood or your extended family. And here Jesus says conflict is even going to arise within extended families and nuclear families and be aware of that. Look at verses 35 and 36. Because of commitment to Christ, it's going to pit family members against each other. Verses 35 and 36. And again, the benefit of reading this is not just to get depressed, although you might. It's, it's to remind us this is not, un, you know, when you get in these situations, don't fear, don't fret. This is, Jesus told us it's going to happen. So that, that is helpful. Verses 35 and 6. I've come to turn, <laughs> it's interesting. I didn't just come and it may turn a man against his father. I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. His own household. Wow, that's sobering. That brings us to the hope-filled part of this sermon. And I, I'm so glad Jesus ended this way. Because I needed this, especially last night working on this, when I was just battling with feeling like a hypocrite for getting up today and thinking, I don't have this kind of courage. Who am I to say this stuff? I read this section and I thought, here's the gospel hope I need. So may this encourage all of us today. Jesus gives us at least three reasons that true disciples, true born-again, blood-bought disciples who know Christ should not fear. Should not fear being hated, made fun of, hassled, rejected. Should not fear suffering or even martyrdom. One, because if you know Jesus, your eternal destiny is secure in heaven and on the new earth. Look at verses 26 to 28. Jesus couldn't have said it any clearer. Verses 26 to 28. So, do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the rooftops. Ladies and gentlemen, young people, kids, please look at verse 28. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body. Last night I'm reading this saying, but I am. I needed Jesus to say, don't be afraid of that. Because they can't kill your soul. Remember, here's the one to fear, says Jesus. The one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So, that means if a person is a genuine follower of Jesus and has a secure destiny in heaven... They don't need to fear. Why? Because salvation is a God project from beginning to end. It is God who elects. It is God who predestines. It is God who draws. It is God who convicts. It is God who redeems. It is God who regenerates. And it is God who keeps. And He's going to keep His people. Nothing can separate us from the love of God if we know Christ. We can't be snatched out of the Father's hand. I mean, pick your verse. There's a lot of them. That we are secure in Christ. So if you're a true disciple of Jesus, the worst thing anything that anybody can do to you is kill you. That's it. They can't do any more than that. They can't do any more to me. 
me give you a personal illustration. Becky and I, in our last church, were very invested. Our church was in Malaysia. Some of you have heard this a little bit, but let me just let me tell you a story. We helped get a church planting team from our church on the ground in Malaysia in Kuala Lumpur. So Becky and I made a lot of trips to Malaysia, taking leaders and elders and staff over. Every time we went, we said we were praying that one of you doesn't come back. They all like, what are you talking about? And God ended up sending four or five of the couples that we had dragged over there over a period of years, put them on the team over there. All right. Last time we were in Malaysia, uh, we had the, I mean, we got to meet all kinds of people. I even got to give uh, the head imam in Kuala Lumpur, the prime minister's imam. I got to give him a New Testament in Malay, which is strictly illegal. I mean, we got to see all kinds of people. We got to see all kinds of things God do. The last time we were there, we got to, we had the incredible privilege of meeting with Raymond Coe and his wife, Suzanne. Now, you need to know one thing about uh, uh, Malaysia, the, just the ethnic breakdown. You have about 60% Malay Muslim. They run the country. They control the courts, the culture, cultural centers. They control everything. It's a Muslim-run country, pretty, pretty strictly. Then you have about 30% Chinese, and they're divided between being Buddhist and Christian. And then you have about a 10% Indian population from the subcontinent of India. That's, and then most of them are Hindu. Some are Christian. Pastor Raymond and his wife are Chinese. And he, God has given him this tremendous burden to share the gospel with Malay Muslims, which is very illegal everywhere in Malay culture. You, just, you, and you, 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 you don't do that. It's, it's stated. It's in the literature. It's in the laws. And we, we had the privilege to sit with Pastor Raymond and his wife for a couple hours and talk and pray with them last time we were there. Just a few people from our leadership team and them. And we, it was a wonderful conversation. Here's this little older Chinese guy, very frail. And they, he said, look it, I'm, I mean, he, he showed great gospel courage, but he did say, uh, you need to know I'm being tracked and I'm being watched and I'm being hassled and harassed on a regular basis by the Bukit Amin, the, the special police. And, you know, we'd been in Malaysia a lot, and I thought, yeah, seriously, is this a big deal? I mean, I don't know. He gave numerous examples. He clearly had, there was some fear in his eyes, and he, as he and his wife shared, we prayed with them. It just felt like you were sitting with a saint. That's what it felt like. A couple years after that, uh, and it's still on YouTube, I watched it this week. Pastor Raymond was driving, normal day in February, in Pataling Jaya, right outside of Kuala Lumpur, where we've been many times. And his little car was pulled over by three or four black SUVs. A security camera from one of the apartments nearby caught this. There's some palm trees in the way, so you can't see everything, but you can see most of it. They pulled him over. The whole thing takes place in about 60 seconds. Two motorcyclists that were in the back stopped all the traffic. The SUVs pull his car over. He's dragged from his car, thrown into one of the SUVs. Somebody from the SUVs in, in a completely black outfit gets into the, his car. The whole thing drives off, and the whole thing took less than 60 seconds. Fast forward two months ago. It's been five years in February, two months ago. Not a word has been heard from Pastor Raymond. Not a word. Obviously, very very hard on his family. And they held a candlelight vigil. It's on YouTube. I watched it this week because I got a hold of one of my friends in Malaysia and just said, what's the latest with Pastor Raymond? We try to keep track of this every so often. He said, oh, you got to see the candlelight vigil from two months ago. So I'm watching it this week. And there's his dear wife, Suzanne. We looked at 
Interesting, his lawyer gets up, the family's hired lawyer, who said he's going to go and sue the Malaysian government, the Malay government, the Muslim government, because now they have overwhelming evidence that the Bukit Amin and the secret police supported and were behind this abduction. thought, wow, that's gutsy to do in a Muslim country. That's interesting. And then she spoke, and she talked about the injustice of it and how hard it's been on their family. But she knows Pastor Raymond is safe, this first point, his eternal destiny is safe. Then she made this statement. At the end of her time of sharing, just two months ago, she said, it's, you know, it's been five long years, we haven't heard a word, this has been horrendous, I have no idea if my husband's alive or dead. And then she said, but, I want to thank the Malay, the Malay Muslim government that if they did murder my husband, that they gave him the privilege to die as a martyr. That's a Jesus perspective. That they gave him the privilege to die as a martyr. I don't know where Pastor Raymond is. Only God knows where he is. But one thing we know, he's safe. He's safe. That's, that's what Jesus is saying in 26 to 28. Second reason we don't have to fear, because of God's providence. Verses 29, 31. Verses 29 through verse 31. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? Not one of them is going to fall to the ground outside your father's care. That's called providence. Even the very hairs of your head are numbered. For some of you, that's not a lot of counting. <laughs> Don't be afraid. Are you worth more than many? You're worth more than a lot of sparrows? And on and on he goes. What's providence? We've said many times, means God large is in charge. He's large and in charge. He ordains everything for his own glory. Whatever happens, he is exactly on track of it and directing our, even if a supervisor at work has it in for you, even if a family member rejects you, even if a teacher has it in for you, or your boss has it in for you, or if you're ridiculed by your classmates or teachers, or even if we face physical martyrdom and violence, God is good and God is in control. Jesus said, therefore, you don't fear. And the third and final thing he said is because Third reason we have to fear, because obedience is the ultimate evidence of salvation and will be rewarded in the, in the next life, 38 through 40. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me isn't worthy of me. It doesn't matter what we say. If we're not doing it, we're not, we're not saved. Whoever finds their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. So the evidence of, of, uh, of obedience is that we know Christ. The, you know, being obedient to Him and clinging to Him, even in persecution, proves we know Him. And also, it will be rewarded. Look at how many times the word reward shows up, and it's speaking of the next life in verses 41 and 42. Whoever welcomes a prophet will receive, as a prophet, will receive a prophet's reward. Whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person, will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones, who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. So Christ wants us to know faithful obedience is evidence of salvation. It's a reason not to fear, and it will be rewarded. All right, let's land the plane. I want to close with words of one of my heroes. Yesterday I had a couple of my grandsons in my car, we talked about what the sermon was about today, and I said, hey guys, the sermon tomorrow is about following Jesus is not safe and it can lead to being killed. Well, with a seven and a five-year-old, that led to all kinds of questions. How would they be killed? What's going to happen to them? They're going to have their heads chopped off and all kinds of stuff like that. 
And I said, could, could, could be me, could be you. Importance is being obedient to Christ. Greg Livingston, founder of Frontiers Ministry, largest outreach ministry to Muslims in the world, a couple years ago issued this statement. I love it. And it's about modeling expectations for the Christian life for ourselves and especially into our kids and grandkids. Are you doing this? Here's what he said a couple years ago. Missionary statesman Greg Livingston wrote, We are not left on earth to be safe as believers. We're not left on earth to be safe as believers, but to follow our Savior in laying down our lives. So, with me? So, sit with your children and your grandchildren and model compassion into their moldable spirits. Remind them, your kids and grandkids, greater is he who is in you than anyone who might be against you. Write out for them the words of our Lord. Do not fear those who kill the body but are not able to kill the soul. Remind your kids and grandkids, rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. I remain a faithful soldier of the cross, Greg Livingston. That is what parenting and discipling and grandparenting needs to look like if we expect the next generation to faithfully hold up under persecution that is coming. Amen? Father, thank you. This is a hard sermon, Lord. And I'm glad Jesus preached it first. And thank you for letting us borrow it. And I confess, I got fearful last night just thinking of preaching this today. Would I hold up to this? I don't know, but I need you. And I pray for any of us who might be facing persecution on whatever level, hassle, rejection, losing a job, getting ridiculed at school, having a family member make fun of us, whatever, that we would stand firm, be gracious, and have gospel courage. And we pray this in Christ's name.